the whole book. It's only two chapters, not that long. Um, and as we read, we're, we're reading this because the book of Ezra has, um, has a little statement in chapter 5, verse 1, that Haggai and Zechariah were two prophets who were during the time of Ezra. In particular, in chapter 5, it says that these two prophets stood up and prophesied at that time. So this week, we're going to look at Haggai. Next week, we'll do an overview of Zechariah. I felt like it was pertinent for us to understand those books as we are studying the book of Ezra. So let's go. Haggai chapter 1. It's a lot to read, but hang with me and let's do it. In the second year of King Darius... In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. Clothe yourself. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as their Lord, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the son, the son of Shealtel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. That was the first sermon, chapter 1. Second one starts here. In the seventh month, 
on the 21st day of the, of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. That was the second sermon, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Here's the third. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches it with the fold of bread or and touches his his fold bread or stew or wine, or oil, or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with the people and with the nations before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, what they offer... There is unclean. Now, then, consider from this day onward, before a stone was placed upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When, when one came to heap to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew. And with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive oil tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of nations and overthrow the chariots and and their riders and the horses. And their riders shall go down, every one 
by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. As we look at the book of Haggai, we have a couple things just to consider. First, Haggai means to observe a pilgrimage feast or simply to make a pilgrimage. This means to go somewhere, to do something, to make a pilgrimage. This is the name Haggai. It's apt because he is the prophet of the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. He is the one who shows up when the people have come back to Jerusalem and we have this 15-year gap where nothing happens. There's a 15-year gap where Darius says, uh, we're going to stop your building. You're not going to be allowed to build. Or actually, um, the, the governor says, you're not going to be allowed to build. And then there's 15 years of debate and kind of argument and persecution. And then it doesn't, re- con- it doesn't resume until Darius allows it to resume. So we have this uh, name, a pilgrimage or a pilgrimage feast. Second, this happens approximately 525 B.C. It's Darius's second year. You can actually break it down pretty specifically to find the exact month and time. I did not do that for you. You are welcome to look that up. It's all over the place. It's easy to find. Um, but we want to consider some of these things just from the outset. That it's been about 15 years and Haggai stands up to preach. About 15 years of building lessness since they got back into the land. So just for a minute, put yourself in the, in the, in the position of the people of uh, the book of Ezra. They've come back to the land. There was this great excitement in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 where they were rebuilding the temple. And you remember there was this shout that was so loud that it attracted adversaries. There was this joy that was so powerful that it attracted adversaries. And mixed with the joy was people who saw it for what uh, for the lack that it was. And you even read that some in chapter 2 of, of Haggai where it said, is it like the former days? Of course not. It's not nearly as beautiful as it once was, but it will be, is what he gets at and what he says. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means in a bit. But um, you've got this, this people group who came back and they started rebuilding and then they're told they have to stop. And there's a 15-year period where they just kind of have to stop and there's nothing they can do. And they're told they can't meet and they can't, they can't gather. And, and there might have been some sacrifices going on. There might have been some celebrations going on. They might have restored a little bit. The, the altar's there. They finished the altar, but they haven't built the temple and the foundations are there. And just imagine as you're going about your daily life and you go to the market and you look down the street and you see where the scaffolding is, the scaffolding is still up. And it's been that way for 15 years. This is like highway construction in Texas. Right? It just seems to be forever. You drive in the same place. They seem to be doing the same work for a thousand years. This This is how it feels. So they're just looking down. And at some point, it just becomes rote. You just know that what should be a four lane highway is one. You just know that what's, 
what was down the street, what's supposed to be down the street, is not finished. And it's not going to be finished. And it's just a shell of what's supposed to be there. You just know that. And so what do you do? You just learn to drive that road. And you learn to ignore the fact that no progress has been made. And you become kind of apathetic about it. This is tragic when you consider that what they're looking at is the temple of the Most High God. The center of their life. The center of life is lying started and unfinished. So Haggai has some key phrases for us to see. I know you saw them there as we read through. Consider is a big one. Consider shows up over and over. God tells them, consider your ways. Consider this. Consider that. It's the same phrase that's echoed in the book of Hebrews when he says, consider, consider Christ. Consider what you have done. Consider the ancient paths. It's the same thing that is echoed over and over in the scripture when Christ calls us to consider what is going on. And he says, consider your ways. And then he makes these statements in Haggai here. Consider your ways. I am with you. I am with you. Consider your ways. I am with you. And he says, consider your ways. I am with you. And he says, work. These are the three key phrases that we see in here. The command to work. The statement of God being with us. And the truth that you need to consider your ways. These Same phrases are echoed in the New Testament over and over and over. We see Jesus calling us to consider him. We see the author of Hebrews telling us to consider consider our ways and consider our affections for him. Consider what we must do and then to stare at or uh, gaze upon Christ, which is the word again in English, consider. To focus, look and gaze upon Christ. We translate that in the book of Hebrews as consider. You have Paul saying, consider your leaders and how they imitate what is good and then imitate them as they imitate Christ. We see that over and over and over. We also see this phrase, I am with you over and over. We read that in John 14. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will be with you. We have a God who calls us to do work, but then stays with us. This is the beautiful thing about our Lord. Even in our failing to obey, God does not leave. Even in our failing to obey, God does not leave. And that's one of the truths we see of Haggai. He takes credit for the things that go wrong. Did you notice? I put holes in your pockets. I stopped things from working. I brought a drought God takes credit for the things that go poorly for the Israelites. Likewise, he does the same for you. And why does he take credit? Because he's with you. Because he's with you. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't leave you in your trouble. Rather, he takes credit for being with you. And then he calls you to work and to build. Calls you to work. And to build. Now, Haggai has a problem. The problem is that the building has stopped. Verses 1 through 4, there we see him telling them the word of the Lord came by Haggai. 
Verse 4, is it a time for you yourself to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So Haggai preaches to a group of people who have built nice houses. When it says paneled houses, that means houses that have nice walls and, and are finished. And they're pretty. They've improved their own houses while leaving the temple of God to itself. While leaving the temple of God unfinished. So they have, they have that's the problem. So... Here's, here's the res- what happened, what made the problem. First, their circumstances overruled their instruction. Their circumstances overruled their instruction. Darius commanded them to stop. An outside authority commanded them to stop. The people, the adversaries came and made it hard for them to do the work. And then they simply let that overrule the instruction. Now... We can ask, what should they have done? There are all kinds of things that we could come up with and answer. Petition the government. They could have petitioned the government. They could have driven out the foreigners who kept saying that it mattered to them. They could have held debates and argued with the foreigners. We don't know what they could have done, but we do know that they should have done something and not nothing. And what they did instead was go, oh, well, I guess we have to have lockdown. I guess we have to give up. I'm sorry, was that too political? I guess we have to have, I guess we have to just submit and do this. I guess, I guess we have to, and hear me, they're not wrong in saying they have to submit, but they did nothing. They didn't petition, they didn't argue, they didn't debate, they didn't, they didn't try to press forward. They did nothing. And so the Lord turns to them and goes, Is it time for you to have nice houses while my house lies in ruins? Is it time for everything to go well for you while the temple, the center of your actual life is in ruins? So there's the profound. They let their circumstance overrule the instruction. They gave in to self-improvement at the cost of the temple. They gave in to self-improvement at the cost of the temple. They built their own houses. They cared nothing for the temple. They built their own houses. They made themselves look good. The people slipped into an apathy about religious affection because the circumstance said they could, they, they should, they shouldn't do it. And then their own self-improvement said they shouldn't do it. Now, I would... I would tie this to the modern concept of, well, I can be better on my own than I can in a church. The modern concept of, I'll do better if I just make my life good out here and don't join a church and don't get involved because churches get messy and are hard. And if I just kind of lone wolf myself over here, I'm better off. I would, I would tie these two together personally. But this is what happens often in our world today. People will neglect the building of the church of God. That's us, by the way, not a physical building, clearly, since we 
rent this one and don't even own this one. It's a great place to preach this message. But it's us as people that we neglect the building of, up of each other for the sake of our own self-improvement. We are living in paneled houses, doing well for ourselves and neglecting the body of Christ. That is a dangerous place to be, self-improvement at the cost of the temple. So the problem is that the building has stopped and then God calls them to consider the result of the problem. Consider the result of the problem. Here's the result. First, God puts holes in their pocket. You saw that down there at the end of verse 6. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. He puts them in a bag with holes. So basically all of his money just funnels right out of the bottom of his pockets. He has pockets with holes in them. Now, this is a beautiful picture of a reality. It's a metaphor. I want you to understand it's a metaphor. They're not actually put... I mean, maybe they were putting their money in pockets with holes. But reality is that there was this uh, sense in which no matter what they earned, it just went right out the window. And we've all been there, haven't we? You get a paycheck and then it's like gone. Right? You've, we've all been there. Everybody has been there. You, you don't have to live long in a capitalist society before you begin to see that your paycheck comes in, the government takes a big portion of it, and then you have to give a portion of it, and then you have bills. And really, it should just, side note, it should be that you give a portion of it, then the government takes a portion of it, and then just, side that's a side note, fun for you. But you, you have... Checks just go straight through. And the question in Haggai's mind is, how much of this is because you are refusing to do the work of the Lord, and so the Lord is just leaving you to your own devices and putting holes in your pocket? I can't tell you how many times I have, I have had the testimony given to me by faithful brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus who love the Lord love the Lord and they're faithful and they're good people. And I want to say that outright up front so you don't think that this is uh, something that, you know, is just negative about people. These are good, faithful people. And at some point they've given me the testimony at some point where they just decided they were going to hold back and not give either to their church or to the ministries that they give to or, or whatever they've, they've said, I'm going to hold back and not give and just stuff starts breaking. Cars break down, the house suddenly starts to fall apart, the air conditioning stop, stops working, and it's as if God goes, all right, I'll just let you deal with this by yourself. And I can't tell you how many times I've had the testimony given, even in my own life and in the life of other brothers and sisters, who said we didn't have the money to give, but we gave anyway, and God took care of our every need. Oh, let me tell you about the time God fixed my ice machine for no apparent reason. It was broken, hadn't worked for years. We're sitting at the kitchen table one day. I had ice trays in the thing. I had taken out the thing that collected the ice. And I had, ta- I had put ice trays and we just heard this, like a bunch of stuff fell out of the fridge. Years. And God just decided he was going to fix our ice machine for no apparent reason. Oh, when we started planting the church and I was concerned about finances. 
Let me tell you story after story after story where God just provided, where our water meter broke for four months because the city, we told them, we reported it. We were honest. We called the city and we were like, the water meter is broken. And they said, we'll send somebody out to fix it. And four months later, we had not had to pay a full water bill because they didn't come fix it. It was all on, it was all them and God just provided for us. Let me tell you about the time that we were faithful to give when we didn't feel like we had the money to give and God was faithful to reward the giving. There is truth in this book about if you will focus on serving the Lord and doing what he has called you to do and giving where he has called you to give, that he will reward that and he will protect that. God puts holes in their pockets when they cease to build. When we are faithful to give, the Lord blesses it. Remember, just the scripture comes to mind, Malachi 3.10, where the Lord says, test me in this. It's one of the only places where God tells you, it's not the only place, but it's one of the only places where God tells you, test me in this, give, test me in this, surrender your offerings to me, and see if I will not pour out from heaven blessing upon your giving. This is a true statement in scripture that God says of himself. The second thing is that they're never satisfied. They're never satisfied. They have no peace. It says, go up to the hill. He says here, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but have never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself and you are never warm. This is, this is, Lack of satisfaction. They have a lack of satisfaction because they have not obeyed the work of the Lord. Satisfaction is married to peace. Satisfaction is married to peace. If you do not have satisfaction, you will not have peace. And if you do not have peace, you will not have satisfaction. If you do not have peace with God, you cannot have satisfaction. And the only way to have peace with God is by trusting in Jesus Christ for life and salvation, giving your sin over, surrendering to him, hand, however you want to put it, but he died on the cross that you would have life and he rose, or he died on the cross that your sin would be destroyed and that, and he rose again that you would have life. This is the truth of Jesus Christ. You can find satisfaction when you find peace in him. Satisfaction and peace are married, and then finally, even nature seems to be against them. And that's in verses 7 and following, when it says, uh, go up to the hills and bring wood and, and all these things. Verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Even nature seems to be against them at this point. Even nature seems to be blowing these things away. Everything is falling apart. You went to get 50 measures, and it came to 20. This was the way that things seem to be. The result of disobedience and failing to build the house of God is that God puts holes in their pockets, they're never satisfied, and even nature seems to be against them. So the problem is the building has stopped. So consider the result of the problem. And then the answer is to rebuild the temple. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel and Joshua, with the remnant of the people, obeyed the word of the Lord their God, the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Therefore, remember at one time. So what is the temple for us? I'm sorry, I forgot to ask that question. What is the temple 
for us. The temple is not a building like it was with Ezra, but it's us. It's us. Remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which, mean, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And... He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Peace in Christ Jesus. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundations of the prophets and apostles, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So you are built together on the foundation that was laid by the apostles and the prophets with Christ being the central piece in whom the whole structure, that's us, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The temple here, according to Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, is us being built together. We are the temple. We are the ones to be built together. We're the ones to be built up. That's who we are. What is the temple? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16 and 18 says this, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. That's plural, and it's us. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be as sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So we have this picture. We are, again, the temple of God. We together are the temple of God, and we together separate from the world. We live differently as a community. Now, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Again, plural. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And this is plural. We are together the temple of God. Finally, just in case you thought it was just the community, it's also you individually. You are also individually part of the temple because here it says, do you not know that your body, you singular, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he's dealing primarily with immorality and 
particularly sexual immorality. And he says very plainly, your body is a temple. You are also individually the temple of God. Treat your body appropriately. So we are the temple of God. Now, Haggai has this great encouragement when we get about the work. So what can we say if we are the temple of God? Then the work for us is to invest in one another. To invest in each other. To spend time, energy, effort investing in building up the body of the church. Discipling each other with the word of God. Speaking the word of God to each other. Praying for one another. Praying over one another. And what hippie pastors like me sometimes call walking life together. Living together in community and harmony for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the world would see that we love one another and we would be marked as people of God invest in the community of faith and thereby build the temple of God so Haggai points out when we get about the work we find community in the work and worship look at this Zerubbabel the son of Shealtel and Joshua the son of Jehoshaphat the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him And the people feared the Lord. Together they fear, as in worship, fear the Lord. They have a fear of the Lord together. When we get about the work together, we find community in work and worship. We find community in work and worship. And let us consider how to stir, this is from Hebrews, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are called as Christians to stir one another up to love and affection, to stir each other up. This, is, this, this means that you're supposed to bother each other. This means that you're supposed to bother each other. Call each other, talk to one another, lift one another up, stir each other up to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more with a a focus that the day is coming soon. We find our community in the work and worship together. Second, our spirits are stirred by God. You saw this here in Haggai 1.14, where it says that the Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua <coughs> and the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. The Lord stirs our spirits, just like with us in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, get this and catch this, hear this. We often fly right past this phrase. But he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. He will stir up life in you. If he has redeemed you and rescued you, he will stir up life in you through your mortal body, to your mortal body, through His Spirit who dwells in you. Later on in the same book, Paul is going to urge you, offer your lives as living sacrifices to the Lord, for this is your spiritual act of worship. When 
we get about the work of God, we find community in the work and the worship, and our spirits are stirred by God. Our spirits are stirred by God. In Haggai chapter 2. Now there are some things God says here about himself in Haggai that we can see. Let's look at them together. First, he says, I am with you. I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord in chapter 1, verse 13. In verse chapter 2, verse 4. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. So God says to the people, I am with you. I love this. God never commands us to do something and then walks away. That's not how our Father operates. He commands us to do something and then gets in it with us. And gets in it with us. I think most of us who have children have have remembered the times when we've told our children to go clean their rooms. And we walk past the room and it goes awful the whole time, right? If the door is here, you walk by and you see your kid and they're like spinning in a circle, right? And you go, what are you doing? And they go, oh, picking up. And they pick up something and they kind of do this. And they throw it on the corner, right? But what happens when you walk into the room and start picking up with them? They begin to pick up, don't they? And they get excited because you're in the room. Because, oh, now it's not just that I'm being disciplined and need to pick up, or it's not just that we have this job to do, but rather now it is I am... I am sitting with my father while we are working. God's word to us, if you get about the work, I am with you. I'm with you. I'm with you, verse 13. I'm with you in verse 2, in chapter 2, verse 4. We read this in John 14 this morning. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you and peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace do I give. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I am with you. Jesus stays with us. Consider that just for a minute, that God gives you instruction, gives you encouragement, and then he stays with you. He stays with you. He doesn't tell you to do it and then walk away. He stays with you. Second, he keeps his covenant. God keeps his covenant according to the covenant that I made in Haggai 2.5, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Now, this is after the exile that he's saying this. He is referencing something that happened a long time prior. The exodus is when he made this promise, evidently. He made this promise in the exodus. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt... God keeps his covenant. It may be a long time before you see the fruit of some promise that God has made. And yet, he keeps his promises. Always keeps his promises. He's with you and he keeps his promises. Verse Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 
gives us this similar promise. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus will finish the work he started in you. Indeed, he will finish the work he started in his church. And it will be glorious because he is glorious. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. God keeps his promises. So first, he is with us. Two, he keeps his promises. Three, he will shake the nations. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens. And then again in verse seven, I will shake the nations. (coughs) And all will come. All the gold is mine. All the silver is mine. In verse eight, the Lord is going to do this. He's going to shake the nations. Imagine being an Israelite, standing and hearing Haggai say, to the people and to the governor, hey, look, I'm about to shake everything and the the temple is behind him unfinished. Now, it's hard to believe that somehow this temple is going to be a kingdom that's going to shake the nations when you're standing in front of an unfinished temple. It's hard to believe and yet, And yet, this is what God promises. He is going to shake the nations. Indeed, it's hard to believe that Jesus is going to set everything right in the world today. And yet, yet we have these promises in 1 Peter, I mean in 2 Peter chapter 3. We have this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, that with the Lord... One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth, the works that are done on it, will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they are burned, as they burn. Peter tells us there is coming a day of judgment. There's coming a day when this will be solved and will be over. There's coming a day, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him, by him without spot or blemish, and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also who wrote you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. These are some things in them that are hard to understand. Which uh, the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You therefore beloved knowing this beforehand. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. And lose your own stability. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So we see these phrases, I am with you, I keep my covenant, I will shake the nation, and finally, I will give you peace. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. This is from Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. The branch. The man whose name is the branch. Just in case you didn't know, branch, that's Jesus. This, the name of branch. The, the branch from the stump of Jesse the branch, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Remember, what's the temple of the Lord for those who trust in Jesus? Us. We are the temple of the Lord. That he will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and a council of peace shall be between them both. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God God by the Spirit. Baird reading again. You are the temple of God built by Jesus, built by the Spirit of the Lord. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus is the fullness of God, and through Him to reconcile to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. And then here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For He Himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I am with you. I keep my covenant. I will shake the nations and I will give peace. And that peace is the presence of Jesus Christ. His glory itself. Long ago, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, says long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the words of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we see He is with us. He keeps His covenant. He will shake the nations, and He will give peace by His presence by His glory dwelling among us. And then we have final instructions in the book of Haggai. These final instructions are simple and they're quick. Be holy. Sin must be dealt with. That's that passage there in chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day, this third sermon that he gives, verse 11, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the folds of his garment and touches it with the fold of bread or a stew or wine, or oil, or, or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answers and says, no. In other words, if you have consecrated something, it doesn't make a bunch of other things holy. You can't, like there's not a magic wand that you can touch things with that makes them holy. But the other way, there is a magic wand. 
He says, if, verse 13, then Haggai said, if somebody comes in contact with dead body or touches it, does it become unclean? And the priest answered, yes, it becomes unclean. You see, because by works of man, we can't make things holy. We can't make things holy by the works of man. So if we walk around and we, we intend to build the body of Christ, but we reside with sin remaining in us, we are dragging down the things that are holy. Fortunate for us, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, who cleanses us daily, we are redeemed and rescued by His blood, and it is applied to us constantly. And we are reassured that daily we are being renewed after the image of our Creator. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, we are being renewed after the image of His Creator. Present tense, active. He is constantly renewing and refreshing us. He is constantly cleansing us of sin. This is the reality that we are made holy over and over by a work of the Holy Spirit in us. By the sanctifying power of Jesus Christ in us. But it says, be holy. Sin must be dealt with in verses 10 through 14. Then God calls them to trust and obey. Explaining that the Lord is actively involved in their successes and failures. In verses 15 through 19. He explains that you went to go get the the wheat and it was less. You went to go get the oil and it was less. You went to go get the wine and it was less than you anticipated. He says, but if you'll obey, you'll get the right amount. I am with you. I am with you. The Lord is actively involved in your successes and your failures in life. In both of them. And then finally, God will accomplish His purposes. And that's that last paragraph there where He tells Zerubbabel that He is going to make him a signet ring and He's going to use him. He is going to accomplish His purposes. We can trust in these things. You can trust that if you pursue holiness and righteousness and goodness, that you will have blessing from the Lord. And I'm not talking simple material blessing, though sometimes that's the case. What I am talking about is honest to goodness life. Life abundant. You might be dirt poor and the Lord still bless you with everything you need. You might be the wealthiest person on earth and the Lord bless you with everything you need. And you be satisfied. Because satisfaction is not found in the things of this earth, but is found in Him and in Him alone. I have been poor. And I have been rich. I have been on both ends of the spectrum in my life. I have wondered where I was going to eat the next day. And I have been in a place where I never had to worry about that at all. I have been both, and I will tell you one thing. The Lord was with me in both places. And because He is good, I was satisfied. Because He is faithful, I was was kept up. Because He is God, I knew who I was. I would tell you that this is about more than material blessing. This is about life. And life to the full. Ups and downs. Highs and lows. Bills being met with ease. And bills that feel like they're a struggle every moment. 
We can be holy. We can trust Him. And we can follow Him and find joy. And God will accomplish His purposes. Indeed, salvation has come in Jesus Christ. And He will bring His kingdom to bear on this earth. Father, we love You and trust You. We know that You have done great things. We know that You are still doing great things. And we pray that You would give us hearts that would trust and obey and follow You. That would love You and be more and more like Jesus every day. We love You and trust You. Amen.